Amen. And what that wisdom saying speaks of is the instruction of God and the scriptures are what should guide our life or what we should build our lives upon. It's what we should turn to each and every moment of each and every day. It should be uh, what it is that, that we seek uh, in each moment of each and every day. God's word says if we lack wisdom, we need to ask for it. We need to ask God to, to bless us with, with that. And uh, we need discernment in a day and a time uh, that we live in. In this fallen and broken world, we need the discernment of God and his word. We need the discernment of the Holy Spirit at work within our lives so that we can apply the truths that are found in God's word so that we can experience the abundant life that Jesus came to give each and every one of us. And so this morning, uh, we're going to ask for, for wisdom by looking at God's word uh, in a specific area that Jesus is teaching on uh, in the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, where we look at Jesus talking about lust. So if you're visiting with us today, this is your first time gathering with us, congratulations, you showed up on the sex talk. So <laughs> we need clarity uh, on this subject today. Uh, we need discernment in regards to something that uh, permeates throughout our society that the devil has used as one of his great schemes to cause so much destruction in the life of individuals, in the lives of marriages, in relationships, and, and separating uh, man from, from God Almighty uh, through sin of lust. And so this morning as we continue in our series of looking at Jesus' life and earthly ministry, we come to this point where we are about a year and a half into Jesus' earthly ministry, uh, and he is preaching uh, this Sermon on the Mount, a sermon that he would have preached in various locations and in various ways, highlighting various things that Matthew records this one instance that he is preaching this, this sermon that is uh, the greatest sermon that has ever been preached because it was the word preaching the word. It was the word made flesh preaching the word of life uh, to those that had ears to hear uh, and eyes to see, and I think it is good for us before we unpack our, our passage today, uh, just to recap a little bit. So if you are joining us anew, uh, you know kind of where we're at and we'll give a little bit of context of what it is that we're, we're reading. And so Jesus has called his disciples uh, and uh, he has the, the 12 with him. He's starting to gain followers, but he's starting to gain some heavy opposition with the, uh, the religious leaders of that day because he's not doing things. He's not being the Messiah that they expected. Uh, he's not checking off the boxes that they had created in their preconceived ideas and notions of who the Messiah was going to be. And primarily, there were four voices that were work in uh, the life of those that were present that day in the culture of that day of uh, the Jews. And what Jesus is doing is he's combating all four of those voices. So you had the voice of the Pharisees that said, religiosity is an external thing. Uh, it doesn't matter about the disposition of your heart. It doesn't matter about what's going on underneath the surface. As long as you're checking off of the boxes externally, as long as you're going through the motions, then that's all that really matters. And that'll bring you joy. That'll bring you happiness. That'll bring you contentment and fulfillment. And what they preached was religion. And we know that religion is dead. Religion has never conquered a grave. But then you also had the voices of the Sadducees. And the Sadducees were uh, individuals that were compromisers. 
So a little bit of God, but I really want the culture and I want the world and I want things that the world says will bring me joy and peace. And I sprinkle a little bit of God on top of that. So they uh, rejected miracles. They rejected the resurrection. This life was all there was. And so to, to, to have a, a little taste of goodness, you, you sprinkle God in upon a lot of depravity and a lot of seeking after the things of the world. And then you had the zealots who believed that peace and joy and contentment was going to come by, by some type of a political institution. And if we just get the right policies in place, if we just get the right politics and the right politicians in the right areas, then we're going to have peace and joy and happiness in this world. The problem is those individuals are broken and in need of a savior, and they can no more do for us that which we can do for ourselves. And then you had the Essenes who said, the world is going to hell in a handbasket. Y'all just kill each other. Y'all devour each other. We're going to go live this monastic life. And they uh, removed themselves from the world. And they set up a compound uh, in the wilderness. And all four of those voices are prevalent in, in our world today. You have the Pharisees that say religion is the answer. It's all about the religiosity, and it's all about the external, it's all about going through the motions, and it really doesn't matter about the condition of your heart. And then you have the Sadducees who said, listen, as long as you have a little bit of God, you just tip your hat to God, you give a nod to God, you show up to church every once in a while, you read your Bible every once in a while, you can live as the world lives, you can do as the world does, just as long as every once in a while you just throw a bone to God. And then we have some that, that fall victim to the message of the zealots that says if we just have the right political person in the right seat, then, then that will usher in the kingdom of God. Listen, Jesus brings in the kingdom. He and he alone. And what we need is we need revival. It's not a political party. What we need is the men and women of God on their face and on their knees crying out to God, sharing the gospel with those individuals who will not be able to live out of the darkness that they find themselves in apart from Jesus. Jesus is the answer. And then you still have the Essenes today that says, listen, this world is so jacked up. Just let them kill each other. Let them devour each other. And we take on this monastic form that says that we don't want to be a hospital for sinners. And we put armed guards on the outside of the church to prevent individuals that are too sick, too smelly, uh, that don't look like us, that don't act like us, that don't think like us, uh, too depraved, too wicked outside so that they don't come in and mess up our pristine, nice interior of our church. And what God's word says is, no, 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 that's who I want. That's who I died for. Usher them in to the foot of the cross so that they can see what it is that I have done for them so they can be set free. So Jesus is speaking and to these four voices, and he says, listen, you want to know what fullness of life is? You want to know what wholeness of life is? You want to know what joy is? You want to know what peace is? You want to know what true humanity is as restored image bearers of God Almighty? And he gives the blessed statements, the Beatitudes. He says, blessed or whole are, are those that are filled with peace, those that are filled with joy, those that are truly restored and are truly living as individuals created in the image of God. They will do these things. And he says, you're the salt and the light. And so don't remove yourself from the world. Don't adopt some, some other type of mode of seeing the world transformed outside of the gospel. But be the salt and the light. 
And he says, let me clarify for you that I'm not coming to abolish the law. I'm actually coming to fulfill the law. And he has given us, as followers of Jesus Christ, the law of Christ. And that law is love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. And what he's going to do is he's going to speak into the religious leaders of that day. And he's going to speak into the zealots and the Essenes. And he's going to say, listen, you have heard it said this. This is how you are fleshing out your faith. Or what you think is going to bring joy and peace and happiness, you're flushing it out in this way. You have heard it said, but I say to you, and he says, I'm going to deal with your heart. Because all the other things are external. All the other things are created in the power of man. He said, no, no, no. There's something that is going on beneath the surface. You're only dealing with the tip of the iceberg when you deal with the external. What we need to do is we need to peel back into the layers of our heart so that we can deal with the brokenness and with the sin that lies there within. So this morning we're going to be in Matthew chapter 5, verses 27 through 30, in a message entitled, Lust, Adultery in the Heart. Now, if we're all being honest with ourselves, obviously we live in a world that is absolutely infatuated with sex. It's everywhere. We're bombarded with it. And in a room this size, it does not uh, fall upon deaf ears or for me to not realize that solely by the percentage of what individuals state in regards to how many individuals are struggling with pornography in their life, that there are individuals in this room that are currently struggling with pornography. And the church has never uh, done or has failed to do a good and adequate job as a whole of dressing with this. It's become taboo in the church. But listen, if we don't wrap our minds around this issue that is destroying so many lives through biblical information and biblical understanding, then what we have done is absconded and capitulated to the world to start defining things. And now we find ourselves in the situation that we're in, where at one point in time, where men were kind of looked upon as live your life out however you want to do, and women were supposed to remain chaste, but men could go and chase whoever they wanted. And instead of the, the, the church calling men back to godly manhood and biblical manhood, we started to listen to the cry of Satan that says, no, no, ladies, you're missing out. It's not call men back to a biblical standard. It's allow the women to now start to advance into the worldly standard. And just as a proverbial, if they jump off the cliff, would you do too? Now we have our women jumping over the very same cliff that many of our men have found themselves splattered at the bottom of. And if your men have already jumped over and your women are jumping over, who's the next group to target? And what do we see today? Our children being bombarded over and over and over. That, listen, you need to advance. You need to catch up. You need to jump over the same cliff that uh, your parents have jumped over, that the men of this world have jumped over, and that the women of this world have jumped over. So pornography is not just an issue for the men in this room. Lust is not just an issue for the men in this room. It is for the the women as well. It's for for our children so that we can put sentries in place. We can put uh, 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 guard posts and guardrails in place according to God's word so that we can deal with this scheme that the enemy has brought. Now, it's not on your your sheet if you're taking notes. It was embedded in a point, but I, I feel like it needed to be its own point, and I think this is where we need to start because this is where I think the church does a really bad job. 
oftentimes we talk about the negativity of sex outside of marriage, and we fail to uh, uphold and shine a light on the beauty of sex within marriage between one man and one woman. And so if you're taking notes, take, take this down, the present, uh, the present, the gift. Uh, listen, you can quote me. You can put this on uh, uh, Twitter. It's X now. You, you can put me on X. You can put me on Facebook. You can put me on Instagram. You can quote me. Sex is great. Sex is great. It is a great and a good gift from God Almighty. And we have allowed the world to distort that. It is a good gift given by God to his creation when utilized the way that he intended it in the confines of a covenant uh, relationship established between one man and one woman in marriage. And we have been so guilty of pigeonholing sexual immorality to only being uh, homosexuality. Listen, any sex outside of marriage between one man and one woman is defined in Scripture as sexual immorality. And we need to understand that, listen, you are missing, truly you're, you're missing out on what God desires for you when you utilize the gift outside of its intended design. Inside that intended design, it is a beautiful gift. Think about the Song of Solomon. Chapter 4 of the Song of Solomon is all about a husband and a wife consummating their marriage. It says, how beautiful is your love, my sister, my bride. Now, don't get weird with that, okay? It sounds strange, right? Like, well, let's, I thought they were from Nazareth, not Alabama. <laughs> Hook them horns. We're, 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 we're not done with it. This is talking about just like we would in the life of the church. That's my brother and sister in Christ. These are, these are two children of God within the ethnicity of the, the Jewish state. And what he's saying is this is my, this is my sister. This is, this is my bride. We're both children of God. Listen, young people, never enter a marriage with a non-believer. Don't do it. Don't missional date. Don't do it. Share the gospel, but don't get in a relationship with somebody that doesn't know Jesus. Don't enter into a marriage with somebody that doesn't know Jesus. Make sure that you both are believers because marriage is a testimony of Christ and his bride, the church. So don't enter in with somebody who doesn't believe that that's the representation, doesn't even believe that Christ came to set us free and make us his bride. Proverbs 5, 15 through 18, I love how the New Living Translation says this. Drink water from your own well. Share your love only with your wife. Why spill the water of your springs in the streets having sex with just anyone? You should reserve it for yourselves. Never share it with strangers. Let your wife be a fountain of blessing for you. Rejoice in the wife of your youth. Notice that sex is always looked at as a beautiful gift when enjoyed between a husband and a wife in a covenant relationship of marriage. 1 Corinthians 7.3 says the husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights and likewise the wife to her husband. In other words, give each other that gift. It is a gift from God. Don't withhold that gift from one another. You can quote me on that too. Right? Pastor said. <laughs> Hebrews 13.4 says let marriage be held in honor among all and let the marriage bed be undefiled for God will judge the sexually immoral and adul adulterous. So it is a good gift. It's a good gift. It is a gift worth waiting to experience 
and to enjoy within the confines of a covenant relationship between one man and one woman. But with all things in this broken world, the good gifts that have been given to us by God uh, have become perverted by the darkness, uh, by the darkened hearts of fallen man. Uh, so with all things that God gives us as a good and a perfect gift, uh, our, our sinful hearts will take that which is good from God and will twist it and will pervert it and will make it something that it was never meant to be. And so uh, the second point or the first point on your sheet is the perversion. And that's what Jesus is, is addressing. Uh, we look here in Matthew 5, verses 27 through 30. Let, let's read it and we will see that what he's not saying is that sex is bad. It is a gift. But what he is saying is that there's a perversion of it. He says, you have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body go into hell. And so what he shows us is that there's this good gift that mankind and their darkened, fallen hearts have perverted to make something that it was never meant to be. To the point that we live in a culture now where there is such a thing as a website called Ashley Madison that exists solely for married people to find other married people to have an affair with. You remember this in 2015 when there was a computer hack and they got all the lists of the names of individuals that were a part of that and they started releasing the names of those individuals and their whole motto is life is too short not to have an affair. And they're still in existence today. In fact, there's over 60 million, they say, uh, individuals that are subscribed to this. And the whole goal is so that you can find somebody committed an adulterous affair with. Or we've relegated sex to a, 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 an app like Tinder to where I either swipe to the left or to the right. It's not a matter about giving that person the dignity as an image bearer of God Almighty. It's just solely based upon an image on a screen. And if I like it, I swipe one way. And if I don't, I swipe another. Or we get into, got into the part that the porn industry is a $97 billion industry annually annually. And that's all they know about. That's, that's the stuff that they say is legal at this point. That's not about sex trafficking. That's not about all of the other things that illegally are going on that we know about. 97 billion annually. To the point that, depending on who you look at, pornography on the internet takes up every day 10 to 30 percent of all internet use. Think about that. Depending on who you look at, the statistics would say that all Internet use is anywhere from 10 to 30% solely to consume pornographic material. And the devil has used this in such a way that he has destroyed so many marriages and so many lives. 1 Corinthians 6.18 tells us to flee from sexual immorality. Don't, don't, don't 
try to tightrope it. Don't, don't get as close as you possibly can, but to flee from sexual immorality. But instead of listening to the voice of God, we have loud individuals that reject God as creator, to reject Christ as Savior, to speak in and to define what sex is for us. Men like Sigmund Freud, who said, when you boil down humanity to its very base uh, uh, element, it's, it's sex. It's, it's sex. The greatest fulfillment uh, of, of being a human is sex. That's where you strip everything away and it all comes back down to sex. Or you have individuals that have spoken into this world like Havelock Ellis and Bertrand Russell who said, listen, it's, it's, not, just about, it's not just about sex, but it's, it's about any kind of sex. In fact, to limit sex into a monogamous relationship within marriage is actually to do disservice to yourself and to what it means to be a human and to this gift of sex. So have extramarital sex, have as much sex as you possibly can, have as deviant of sex as you possibly can. And then you have uh, voices like uh, Alfred Kinsey, who is just an absolute demonic individual who did uh, atrocious things. Men like John Money, who in the name of science did horrible, unspeakable things to children. Listen, there's been more abominations done in the name of science than ever in the name of religion. You have individuals like Margaret Sanger who came along and said, listen, with all this free love and, and free sex and all of these, these other things, there's consequences that come with that. Listen, what we, what we do is we just, we, we just murder that life or we just turn, our blind, uh, turn a blind eye to those consequences. And she was nothing more than a eugenist like Hitler. And we have uh, uh, temples made in her honor all throughout the major cities of our country now in Planned Parenthood. And they have put into this world a picture and an image of, of sex that says it can be casual to the point that we talk about friends with benefits. We talk about hookups. We no longer talk about living in sin. We just call it living together. We no longer talk about sexual immorality. We just say we're sexually active. And it has brought so much destruction within our world and within our lives. We look back and we see this thing called the sexual revolution and we are paying the consequences and we see the carnage of this idea that we reject God's stance and God's view and God's boundary of what sex is. And the sexual revolution rests on the idea that fulfillment is a matter of personal and psychological happiness and anything which obstructs that, specifically uh, biblical sexual ethics, is by definition oppressive and preventing us from flourishing. That this is actually inhumane to live in a world that is defined by the boundaries of God on the issue of sex is actually to miss out on what it means to be human. And God's word says, no, 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 to do anything else is to actually miss out on what is to be truly human. For he is our creator and therefore he defines how these gifts should be used. You see, the sexual revolution propagated sex detached from deep, meaningful prior relationships, and that tends to result in two compounded destructions. First, when you treat sex that way, the purpose of sex is reduced to the selfish, personal pleasure of the moment. And second, the partner is transformed from being an end in themselves to being a means to an end. In other words... The purpose of a sexual encounter is not to share intimacy through God's great gift of sex with one person 
of the opposite sex in a committed monogamous covenant established relationship, but it is to use another body for one's own personal pleasure. In other words, it is fundamentally dehumanizing because now the person is just a means to an end. And I really don't care about that person. I don't care about their feelings. I don't care to really get to know them. As long as I get out of that person what I want out of that person, and now they become an object to be used instead of a person to be poured into. And sex becomes something for yourself as opposed to an act of worship to God Almighty for using the gift as designed by our Creator. And pornography is nothing more than this taken to its logical conclusion, that the person does not matter, only their bodies do. And now we find individuals shipwrecked, decimated because of a lack of understanding of God's good gift, perverted to be used in ways that it was never intended to be. You see, the sexual revolution ultimately and primarily is not about sexual behavior. It's really about identity. Once sexual desire has been made the foundational element of human identity like Freud propagated, then debates about sex cease to be debates about how we act and become debates about who we are. Think about this. Think think about flags that get flown for individuals that find themselves within a certain lifestyle. Now, you think about what a flag has always meant and has always indicated. You think about uh, the United States of America, think about any country. They have a flag. They say, this is who we are. This is, this is us. This is our identity. It's not so much about acts. It's about who we are identifying together as people united. And now the big thing has become a flag because it's not about the behavior. It's not about an act. It's about uh, their identity. And so when you speak... In biblical terms, against sexual immorality, and you say, listen, it's not I'm attacking you as a person because God loves you as a person. He hates the sin that is in your life, and I'm addressing the sin in your life. They reject that notion completely because they can't disassociate themselves from the act. That is their identity. That is who I am. I am this person. This is me. So to call me away from that is to call me away from self. But what God says is, listen, your sexual identity is not who you are. It's not what makes you who you are. What makes you who you are is you're an image bearer of God Almighty. And apart from faith in Jesus Christ, you are separated from God Almighty. But through faith in Jesus Christ, you you are in Christ Jesus and you have been reconciled back to God. But we try to boil identity down to a sexual preference. Listen, listen. That is to cheapen who we are as people. Who we are are image bearers of God Almighty. That's why Jude 4 says, For certain people have crept in unnoticed who long ago were designated for this condemnation, ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only master and Lord, Jesus Christ. Now, this is talking about false prophets that come into the church. But anybody that propagates that sex can be enjoyed with God's uh, uh, good uh, stamp of approval upon it, that is sex outside of marriage between one man and one woman, he's a false prophet. He's outside. That is not what the Bible teaches, and that is not what the Bible says. And this word sensuality, it's the compound of two Greek words that means a moonless night. It means there's no light shining. 
And he says, when we fall into sensuality, and I would say that our country and I would say our world is steeped in sensuality, remember that we are to be the light of the world. And what does that mean? We're to be like the moon reflecting the light of the sun back out into the dark night. This idea of living in sensuality or living in desires that are of the flesh, it's like we're not reflecting the light of God back out into the darkness. And when we take that position with sex that the world has propagated and we reject the position of sex that the Bible has commanded, then we are like a moonless light night on a dark night where the world doesn't get to see the light of Christ Jesus. And we must, we must adhere to God's holy word. Lust, if you're taking notes, is a perversion of the imago Dei. It is a perversion of the fact that we are image bearers of God Almighty and that individuals can be treated as nothing more than an object, can be treated as nothing more than an image, can be, can be treated as nothing more than a means to an end, and lust perverts the Imago Dei. Lust is also a perversion of one's imagination. Uh, our God-given imagination that, that, that helps us uh, have beautiful art and to create new technologies and to do those things. It, it, lust is a perversion of that to where we look at somebody and we start to fantasize about that person and we start to use them as an object and we take this God-given gift of imagination and we start to use it for wicked and darkened things to satisfy the flesh of our hearts. Thirdly, lust is a perversion of God's intended design. God intended sex to be used between one man and one woman in the confines of marriage, and it perverts that to say this gift can be used in any way that you possibly want with whomever that you possibly want. And so Paul speaks to the Romans in Romans 13, 12 through 14, and he says this, The night is far gone, the day is at hand, so then let us cast off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. In other words, let us reject that which Freud taught. Let us reject that which uh, was taught by Kinsey, and let us reject that which is taught by men like John Money. Let us reject what Bertrand Russell uh, propagated for us. Let us reject what Margaret Sanger spoke into this world. Let us reject that. Let us reject the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let us walk properly as in the daytime, not in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and sensuality. Again, that's a picture of a moonless night, not in quarreling and jealousy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. Now, listen, God doesn't have problems with our desires. He gave us our desires. He just wants us to use our desires in a way that brings him glory as defined by him in his word. And so what C.S. Lewis says rings so true when he speaks of the fact that it would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us, like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine the offer of a holiday at sea, we are far too easily pleased. So we miss out on what it is that God wants us to experience with sex inside the confines of one man and one woman, and we settle for mud pies that the world is offering us, and we forgo the holiday at sea that God is offering us. And it's not that our desires are too strong, it's that they're too weak. We're too easily pleased. We're pleased with an image. And God said, no, 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 don't you understand? I made this other person for you to enjoy, to know, to deepen at a heart level with, 
to enjoy this gift with. And when we fail to do that, we fail and miss out on what God truly intended. And I think G.K. Chesterton hits it right on the head when he says, the man who knocks on the door of the brothel is really looking for God. They're looking for something in their brokenness that only God can fulfill. They're going in search of something in a place that can never fulfill them. And they're, what they're really looking for is what only God can give them. They may reject God in his entirety, but their actions show that they're not satisfied. That's why they have to look at image after image after image. And it has to be more depraved and more depraved and more depraved because it doesn't satisfy the imaginations and the fantasies, they don't satisfy until we go looking in the brokenness of this world for a fix to the brokenness in our heart. And broken can't fix broken. Only Jesus can restore it. Only Jesus can fix us. But I love that Jesus doesn't just address a problem. He gives us the prescription. He said, listen, this beautiful gift has been perverted, but we're not hopeless. There's a prescription that he gives in this passage. He says, listen, all those that looks at a woman with lustful intent and has already committed adultery within his heart, uh, listen, that, that doesn't mean that there, there's no hope for you. There doesn't mean that there's any grace for you, but there does mean that we need to do something, and the first is confession of our sin. The first thing that he calls us to is that uh, we are to confess our sin, and the way we do that is we have to call it what God calls it. Notice what he says, if your right eye causes you to sin, doesn't cause you to mess up, make a mistake, we better call it what God calls it. He calls it sin. He calls it the very thing that he sent his son Jesus Christ to die on a cross for. And if we try to marginalize it, if we try to gloss over it, and we fail to truly communicate to God what he calls it, then we have missed out on what it is that God wants to do in our hearts and in our lives. And so we must, we absolutely must confess our sin. And we need to call it what it is. 1 John 1.10 through chapter 2 verse 2 says this, if we have not sinned, if we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar. In other words, if we start calling it something that God doesn't call it, then we make him a liar because he calls it sin, and his word is not in us. My little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins or the payment for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. So we all have access to forgiveness, but we need to call it what God calls it. And sexual immorality is just that. It's sin. It's sin. And we must confess that to our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And maybe that's confession for the hundredth time. Maybe that's confession for the very first time as you repent of your sins and place your faith and trust in Jesus. But the prescription is a cleansing of our heart. And so he speaks in these terms that is drenched in hyperbole that, listen, if you sin, pluck your eye out or cut your hand off. Now, he's not calling us to actually physically maim ourselves. He's speaking in hyperbole because he's saying, listen, as bad as that would be, it's still worth it to prevent yourself from going to hell. Because there is a judgment that is far worse than you going through the pain and the suffering of this world with, with removing an eye and removing a hand. Because here's the thing, you can still search for pornography with your left hand. 
You can still view an image with your left eye. So what he's saying is, listen, it's not about an external way of trying to, in your own power and your own strength, prevent this from being prevalent in your life. No, no, no. You got to go to the heart of the matter. You need to have a heart that is cleansed. That's why Jesus says, listen, when you come to me, I give you a brand new heart. Because there is where the problem ultimately lies. And when we receive that new heart and we become a new creation and we still struggle with those things of lust in our lives, we can come to him and he is there to receive us, to cleanse us, because he is faithful and just to do so, as 1 John 1, 9 speaks of. Thirdly, he says the prescription is not just confessing your sin and receiving a cleansed heart, but it's carrying of your cross. It's to carry your cross. It's it's an attitude of self-denial. When he talks about plucking out your eye and cutting off your hand, it's, it's denying yourself. It's denying the flesh. Matthew 16, 24 says this, Then Jesus told his disciples, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Now, if you have denied yourself, if you have taken up your cross of self-denial, and you're following after Jesus, he's not going to lead you into viewing porno- pornography. He's not going to lead you. If you're following Jesus, he's not going to lead you into turning things on your TV or fantasizing about somebody. That's not of God. And what we find the prescription for the lust that is embedded in many of our hearts is the cross of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. It is coming to the cross. It is finding forgiveness. It is denying ourselves. It is understanding that my greatest identity is not in my sexual persuasion or my sexual activity. It is in the fact that I'm an image bearer of God Almighty and Jesus Christ died on the cross for me. And through faith in him, I am now born again and I, I am a redeemed, a reconciled child of God. You see, a sacrifice in which that he is speaking of is necessary to pursue sexual purity is worthwhile since the consequences of sexual sin are so frightening. That's what he's trying to get them to understand and what he's trying to get us to understand. Eternity is more important than the present life, and purity is more important than fitting in with the culture that is around us. Eternal satisfaction is of greater importance than instant gratification. And isn't that what the devil does to us? Look at this image. Feast your eyes. Fulfill this fleshly desire. And you're going to find what it is you're looking for. You're going to find that peace. You're going to find that joy. You're going to find that release of frustration. You're going to find all these things. And then the moment you bite into that, and that has been experienced, that fantasy of another individual, that acting out of that fantasy with somebody else other than your spouse, the devil's right there on the other end of that to say, look at you, and heap condemnation and despair. You say you belong to him, and you're looking at this? He doesn't want anything to do. You think he'll forgive you, and you've been doing this, so he calls us. Find your joy, find your peace, find your happiness. And on the other side of that is nothing but condemnation and guilt and shame from the very voice that called us to it. 
And then we begin to start to live defeated lives. And we wound our spouses. We wound our own soul. We wound God. And how many of us, if we were to say that we've struggled with pornography in our life, and I would be one, would say that I was first introduced to it by coming across something that, that maybe a parent had in their house. You don't think we need to guard our homes and our hearts not only for our sake and for our spouse's sake, but for our children's sake as well? And oftentimes we leave the front door wide open. And we allow the world to start defining terms and we allow the world to start defining what sex truly is as opposed to us going to God's word and saying, no, 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 this is what it is. And that brings us to the last point. And what he points to is the peril of not dealing with sexual immorality by repenting and placing your faith and trust in Jesus. For those that reject Jesus and the need of a cleansed heart through faith in Jesus. It's not to say that true believers don't struggle with sexual immorality. And if you do, I pray, if you're, if you're struggling with pornography, I pray that you would take a connect card or you would call up to the church or you would send me an email and you would say, man, that is a struggle of mine because you need accountability. You need brothers and sisters in Christ to come alongside of you to help you to walk through that. And listen, if you could find victory over it in your own power and your own strength, I guarantee you already have done it. You need individuals to come alongside of you and help you navigate this. And, and be careful if you think you're standing firm because uh, pride become, comes before the fall. That would never be me. Those are famous last words. That we stand back like the religious individuals looking at the sinner beating his chest saying, Thank you, God, I'm not like him. Thank you, God, I'm not like her. That we would do the, the hard work of pressing in and leading in, leaning in together to walk through this. And so we see the peril of this. We see the peril of destruction because he says, listen, there's something far greater than losing a hand and an eye, and that is losing your whole body in hell. And although society views sexual sin very casually, God does not. 2 Thessalonians 1, 5-9 says this, this is evidence of the righteous judgment of God. I think oftentimes individuals look at the doctrine of hell and say, uh, why would God do that? That is so unloving because he is just and he is righteous. And there has to be a penalty and a payment for our sin. And that is the beauty of the cross is that is where our sin was paid. And now through the blood of Jesus Christ, we all have access to forgiveness of our sin. But it is only applied to those that place their faith and trust in Jesus. That all are called to the foot of the cross to repent and place their faith and trust in Jesus, and Christ will turn away none. But there is coming a day of judgment. And for the believer, it's at the bema seat of Christ where we receive our rewards for how we have stewarded the salvation that was given to us by the grace of God. And for the non-believer and those that reject Christ Jesus, it will be at the great white throne of judgment where the book of works will be open. And perfection is what must be attained for you to enter. And there is nobody that has lived a perfect life here on this earth other than our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. So unless you lived 2,000 years ago and you laid in a tomb for a few days and you got nail-pierced hands and nail-pierced feet, I can tell you which category you're in. And we all need the one who did go to the cross, and we, need all, we all need the one who was buried and who did rise 
And so the evidence is that the righteous judgment of eternal separation from God is just that. It is a righteous judgment that you may be considered worthy of the kingdom of God for which you are also suffering. Since indeed God considers it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you and to grant relief to you who are afflicted as well as to us. When the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus, they will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might. And that ought to make each and every one of our hearts break and weep over the fact that this is a reality that many individuals will face. And it ought to produce in us an urgency to share the good news of Jesus Christ with those that are around us. Because if you're taking notes, hell is real. It's not a fictitious place. Hell is real. It is a real place. Jesus talks about hell more than almost any other subject. He talks about hell often. And it is because he desires for us not to experience that. Think about Lazarus and the rich man. The rich man is in hell, and he says, listen, could somebody just please bring a drop of water and put it on my tongue? And could somebody go tell my brothers, please repent, turn to the Lord? They, they need to give their life over to Jesus. If I had another opportunity, if I had another opportunity to do it again, that's what I would do. So somebody go and tell my brothers that they need to repent. Listen, before we get to, to, to heaven, may, may we uh, share that message that he desired for his brothers to hear with the world that is around us. Repent and believe because hell is real. And secondly, hell is rejection. And it's not God rejecting you. It's mankind in his sinfulness rejecting the atoning sacrifice of Jesus Christ upon the cross. It is saying, no, 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 I don't need him. I'm just fine myself. I'm a good person. Well, who gets to define what a good person is? Jesus would say, you call me good, but there's none good but God. So if you're not God, that means we don't fall in the category of good. So no matter what standard it is that you are creating to meet, to quantify yourself as a good person, it does not measure itself up to the standard of God. Thirdly, hell is relentless. It does not end. It is perpetual pain and suffering and brokenness. It is an eternal state of giving individuals their heart's desire. If they say, I don't want anything to do with God, I can do this on my own. I don't need the sacrifice of Jesus. He says, okay, you will remain in that condition for all of eternity. And he gives individuals exactly what they want. You don't want me, I'll give that to you for eternity. We ought to proclaim to the very ends of the earth the gospel message of Jesus. And I think that there are individuals when we start talking about hell, there's a hush that kind of falls over us. There's an uneasiness that starts to settle into our hearts. But the truth of the matter is, although... There may have been individuals and there may have been times where those old hellfire and brimstone preachers were sharing the truth without love and sharing the truth without grace. The truth of the matter is in the church today, we need a little bit more hellfire and brimstone. We need a little bit more. You're going the wrong way over a cliff of destruction and death. There's a way that seems right to man, but in the end it leads to death. And I want to call out to you. 
about the one who saved me from the same thing. It's to do so out of love. My, my five-year-old, he's a little bit of a daredevil. He's a little bit of a hard head. I think he gets that from me. And my mom would attest to that. He'll jump from the sofa to the couch. He'll run full speed through, through the house. I mean, he's just, he's just all over the place. And I'll tell him, dude, you got to stop. You're about to get hurt. Like, what you're doing, you're about, you can't get down from the ceiling fan. You know what I'm saying? You can't, you can't do that. You're going to get hurt. And it's not that I'm trying to ruin his fun. It's not that I'm, I, I'm, I'm trying to prevent him from experiencing joy and happiness. It's I know and I understand something that he fails to understand is that you're about to get hurt. Last night, playing around, probably doing some things. I don't know the whole story. I just heard the cry. Here he is, and he's crying, and it's a scenario that I've seen play out many times where I've told him, dude, you got to stop, and then he gets hurt. Three minutes later, he's in his mama's arms. Mama just is taking care of her baby. Me, I'm like, I told the dude. Like, I told him. I told him what was going to happen, natural consequence, you know what I mean? Let him cry. Let him cry out. Put some neosporin on it, and, and let's go. Mama, we obey my baby. My baby fell off the couch, hurt his back, he over there crying. That's what God is trying to communicate to all of us. What you're doing is going to cause pain and suffering and destruction and heartache and tribulation. And I don't want that for you. If you don't repent of your sin, if you keep going in the direction that you are going, it leads to eternal separation from me. Repent and turn and come to me into my loving arms. And Jesus is like mama to a a hurt baby. He's there to wrap his arms around us and to console us and to give us his truth and his wisdom. But there is a day where the door of the new ark that is Christ Jesus will close and all those that are outside of Christ will face eternal destruction and all those that are inside will face joy and peace and happiness and wholeness and the glory that is to come because Christ is our refuge. The question is, are you outside or are you in? It's not by good works that you earn your way in. It is solely by faith in Christ Jesus and the redeeming atoning work of Christ on the cross. And he says, listen, it's not about an external act of have you acted upon your lustful desires, and that's what separates you from me. It is the fact that if you have ever had a lustful desire over somebody else, that sin is accounted to you and has separated you from me, and the propitiation of that sin is not your good works but the blood of Christ and the only thing that can reconcile you back to me. The question is, you stand upon the merit of your own works or upon the merit of the sanctifying, satisfying, perfect, unblemished blood of the